Blog Talk Radio.
This is Abayomi Azigawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azigawe. Uh, today is Sunday, November 12th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recent claims that the United States has launched additional airstrikes in eastern Syria, purportedly targeting bases of the resistance forces which have fired on Pentagon installations. Billionaires in the United States are preparing to launch a well-financed campaign to counter Palestine's solidarity efforts. And hospitals in Gaza remained under siege uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces. And French military forces are continuing to leave uh, their bases in West Africa. In the second and third hours, we'd look at the countries which are severing ties with Tel Aviv. Later, we analyze the cost of the war on Gaza. We then examine the early history of the formation of the State of Israel and its impact on the United Nations with the assassination of Count Bernadotte. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the legendary Um Kaltoum of the North African State of Egypt. Uh, this is a uh, concert that was recorded in Abu Dhabi in 1971. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Welcome back, <clears throat> and uh, you're listening to the music of uh, Um Kaltum, and uh, that uh, opera uh, was entitled Days Have Passed, and of course uh, it uh, says days have passed, days have passed and turned uh, while we were part arguing. Then I met him, forgot the dispute we had, forgot the night that I lied awake and forgave him for the confusion and the agony of my heart. I don't know how, how, how did I talk to him? How can't stand, I can't stand being apart from my loved one. Who else, who else do I have other than my loved one? And uh, he met me yearning in his eyes, greeted me uh, with his hands in mine and whispered to me, I'm sorry, the blame is on me. And I forgot what drove us apart. Where are my tears that never stopped all nights? A smile from his eyes made me forget about them. The bitterness, agony, the sweetness, agony, the agony brought from love to lovers. And uh, that, of course, uh, is that El Ayam by Um Kaltum and her orchestra performed live in concert. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal. A worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the report uh, that the United States has conducted a new round of airstrikes against facilities used purportedly by Iran uh, in eastern Syria. Uh, this took place uh, late Sunday in retaliation for a spat of recent attacks against American troops. Uh, Pentagon officials said this uh, early on Sunday. Officials said the strikes most likely killed or injured an undetermined number of people at the sites. This is according to a report uh, from uh, the Associated Press. The airstrikes appeared to mark an escalation by the Biden administration, which had previously conducted two sets of airstrikes that officials said were meant to deter Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and militias it supports in Syria and Iraq. U.S. officials had said those strikes had caused no known casualties. On Sunday night, Air Force F-15E fighter jets struck several buildings in Abu Kamal used for training, logistics, and storing munitions, as well as a safe house in Mayadeen. Used as a command headquarters, the officials said, the strikes came just four days after American warplanes hit a munitions warehouse in eastern Syria. An earlier set of U.S. retaliatory strikes came on October the 27th. And you can read uh, this story in its entirety over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, commenting on Sunday's confrontations, Israeli media outlets have highlighted Hezbollah's improved tactics as well as the Israeli occupation forces ill preparedness. Israeli occupation forces lack the ability to conduct wide-scale ground maneuvers past the Palestinian-Lebanese borders, Israeli media outlets reported on Sunday. The effectiveness of the occupation's air force against Hezbollah anti-tank units has decreased in the past few days. <laughs> Israeli Channel 13 reported following several operations conducted uh, from South Lebanon, targeting various Israeli positions alongside the Lebanese-Palestinian uh, border. 
The Israeli broadcaster noted that the number of red alerts in northern occupied territories exceeded those that originated from the Gaza Strip. The occupation is in a defensive situation in the north where we see hits and injuries, and Hezbollah's tactics have become more effective in the face of Israel's airstrikes, Channel 13 reported. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in the United States, a billionaire real estate tycoon in the United States is rallying support for a high-dollar media crusade to boost Israel's image and demonize the Hamas organization amid global demonstrations that have taken place uh, in, of course, uh, around the world in support uh, of of the Palestinian struggle. These uh, efforts uh, by pro-Zionist elements come late as uh, millions of people have demonstrated uh, in various continents around the world uh, in support of the Palestinians. And finally, uh, Israeli says his fighter jets have pounded Hezbollah's targets in southern Lebanon after incoming anti-tank missiles wounded Israelis near the border. The Israeli army on Sunday said a number of civilians were wounded in the anti-tank missile strike near the village of Dovev, uh, just 800 kilometers. That's 0.5 miles from the frontier with Lebanon. And uh, finally, with a wave of coups in former French colonies in Africa, France is finding it can no longer take its military role on the continent for granted. There have been growing protests against France's presence in Africa, where it has previously flexed its mighty uh, military might. French troops have recently been expelled from Niger and Mali, and others are considering uh, scrapping independence areas deals that led to at least 30 French direct military interventions between 1964 and 1995. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal <coughs> special <coughs> special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, November the 12th, in the early morning hour of uh, Monday, November 13th, just go. Uh, to our website at the uh, Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Ooh, 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 ooh
Detroit's own Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled I Can't Sleep at Night. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for the early morning hours of uh, Monday, uh, November 13th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studio in downtown Detroit. In um, the struggle uh, waging right now in Palestine, in response to that struggle, in response to the genocidal warfare uh, being leveled against the Palestinian people by the United States and by the State of Israel, uh, we have uh, countries that have severed diplomatic ties uh, with uh, the State of Israel in South America. And uh, this report uh, goes into detail about those countries and about those developments. Let's listen in. Global outrage over the war on Gaza is growing. The massacres and devastation are putting countries under pressure to act against Israel. Some have already announced they're breaking off diplomatic relations. So will this pressure the U.S. and Israel's other Western allies to reconsider their support for the war? This is Inside Story. Hello there and welcome to the program. I'm Nick Clark. So Israel's bombardment of Gaza is now into its second month. More than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. Huge swathes of the Strip have been reduced to rubble. As public anger grows around the world over what some are calling a genocide, Israel is facing something of a diplomatic backlash. South Africa and Bolivia have severed relations with Tel Aviv. Other countries are recalling their ambassadors and embassy staff. This is seriously setting back Israel's efforts in recent years to establish relations with many nations that boycotted it for decades. So can these diplomatic moves pressure the U.S. and Israel's other Western allies to push it to at least agree to a humanitarian ceasefire? We'll be discussing this and more with our guests shortly. But first, this report from Sarah Gill. For one month, Gaza has been under unrelenting attack. Continuous airstrikes have left a catastrophic trail of destruction. Every basic service is either not functioning or overwhelmed. Hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, grocery stores and bakeries have been reduced to rubble. More than 10,000 people have been killed. In some of his sharpest remarks yet, the head of the United Nations has called again for a ceasefire and help for those under attack. The parties to the conflict and indeed the international community face an immediate and fundamental responsibility to stop the inhuman collective suffering and dramatically expand humanitarian aid to Gaza. Israel is facing pressure to stop the strikes not only from the highest ranks at the UN, but also from nations around the world. Several countries have withdrawn their ambassadors from Israel. Bolivia was the first country to sever ties. South Africa is the latest. We believe the nature uh, of response by Israel has become uh, one of collective punishment which falls fully outside of the practice of international humanitarian 
and international human rights law. As well as growing diplomatic isolation, protests against Israel's war on Gaza are being held around the world, from Jakarta to Washington, D.C. Some countries have even seen their largest demonstrations ever. Israel's staunchest Western allies, including the U.S., are coming under increasing pressure to reevaluate their position on the war. So, can the Biden administration persuade Israel to at least agree to a humanitarian ceasefire? Sarah Gill, Fit Inside Story. Well, since the fighting began in Gaza, nine countries have recalled their ambassadors or have cut off diplomatic relations with Israel. A NATO member, Turkey, has withdrawn its ambassador. So has Israel's neighbor, Jordan, that says the country is committing war crimes. South Africa is the latest to join the list. And Bolivia was the first to completely sever ties with Israel. It said its decision was a condemnation of the aggressive and disproportionate Israeli military offensive taking place in Gaza. Uh, so let's bring in our guest today. We are stacked with diplomatic and political expertise in Islamabad. Uh, we have Maliha Lodhi, who's a former Pakistani ambassador to the United Kingdom, to the United States, and to the United Nations. And Iman Jawad Anani, who's a former deputy prime minister and foreign minister in Jordan. And in Pretoria, Kali Boha Mapunye, a professor of African politics at the University of South Africa. A warm welcome to each of you. Uh, Jawad Anani, I'd like to start with you. Let's cut to the chase. As a former foreign minister, you know well, very well, the machinations of diplomacy. So before we get to the nitty-gritty of Jordan's position, generally, how serious do you think the, all these diplomatic withdrawals are for Israel? Should Israel, will Israel, heed them as a warning? Uh, will it make any difference as to how they proceed, do you think? Well, I'm sure they are a little bit concerned about them, but probably they will not dissuade this current government from continuing with the same uh, with the same uh, genocide that it is now practicing. Uh, so far, we just heard from Netanyahu that he is going to take care of the security in Gaza for an indefinite period of time. This is uh, just a polite word, not polite, but uh, another word for for occupation. And so, therefore, instead of uh, allowing the Palestinians mm -hmm. the freedom to have their own state, he is now controlling more, 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 uh, restoring the occupation to Gaza, which uh, the Israelis relinquished under uh, uh, ex-Prime Minister uh, Sharon. So, in a way, uh, this is not going anywhere so far, and there is not, uh, and the demand, and the, and the United States, and judging from the Statements which have been made by Mr. Blinken, uh, State, uh, Secretary of State, uh, are not encouraging at all. Uh, we okay. hear, of course, some changes, some tones uh, in Europe, but uh, that is not echoing yet uh, and not resonating with the Israeli government. Okay. Uh, Maliha Lodi, your former Pakistani ambassador to the UK and the United States and to the UN. Again, you know very well how this all works. But do you sense a, a growing sense of discord in the global community? Do you think we will see more ties being cut? I think what we are witnessing right now is that the tide of global opinion has moved decisively against Israel and in solidarity with the Palestinians. I think there are several indicators of this. 
Uh, one, I, we know that a majority uh, of countries, in fact, almost two-thirds, voted for a ceasefire in the UN General Assembly. Uh, so you can see that uh, the U.S. and Israel, who opposed the resolution, um, you know, they were defeated. Second, uh, as you mentioned, more and more countries are severing uh, their ties with Israel or recalling their ambassadors. Three, I think uh, another indicator is that the pro-Palestinian protests across the world are just growing in intensity, and there, there is a momentum uh, to them, which is really quite unprecedented. And the fourth indicator, I would say, of uh, this change in the tide of uh, global opinion is that we have seen very strong statements from the 18 heads of UN agencies and NGOs that have called uh, for a ceasefire and have expressed shock and horror at what Israel is doing. So we are looking at uh, a changing dynamic here. Uh, all of this pressure, I think, is necessary but still not sufficient to dissuade the United States from its blind support of Israel. Right, so Miliha, I was just about to come to that because it's all very well talking <laughs> about this change in dynamic and the, this tide of global opinion. But while Israel has the U.S. support, Miliha, it doesn't make any difference. It can just proceed as it wishes. Well, it seems that the only country that Israel will respond to is the United States. But I think the fact that Secretary Blinken has been shuttling between various Middle Eastern countries shows that there is increasing worry uh, in the Biden administration. Also, I think if you look at what's happening at the UN Security Council, after three failed attempts to get a resolution through, which would be binding, uh, there is a fourth attempt as I speak. Now, whether the deadlock in the Security Council can be broken or not, we have to wait and see. So far, the gridlock is there. Uh, but the U.S. is coming under increasing pressure. And as I said before, uh, this pressure, diplomatic pressure is necessary, but still not sufficient. All right. We'll explore the, the uh, situation at the U.N. and the U.N. Security Council in particular shortly. But uh, let's get the view from South Africa now, from Pretoria, Kali uh, Bukha. Uh, South Africa, of course, a big, big international player. And such a decision will not have come likely uh, to uh, withdraw the ambassador. Tell us about the considerations that the top brass in South Africa would have been taking into account as they made this decision. There are quite a number of aspects or factors that led to South Africa's view of withdrawing. Uh, firstly, it is the question of increasing public protests, which we have seen recently, ever since the... Uh, uh, attacks on Israel by, by Hamas, and of course the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, subsequent um, attacks by the Israeli military on Gaza and civilians and so on. So that is the main thing that, in my view, has uh, led us to this decision whereby South Africa eventually felt that they need to pull out. But we mustn't forget that South Africa, during the apartheid era, Many freedom fighters from the African National Congress, from the Pan-Africanist Congress, and other liberation movements were supported by the Palestinians. And to that extent, South Africa feels a very, very strong sense of solidarity with the Palestinians, especially black South Africans. We are not discounting the fact that there is also a sizable Jewish population here. We should obviously, you know, side with, with, with Israel. And the most important thing is that in the diplomatic sphere, 
uh, withdrawing an ambassador or even cutting diplomatic ties sends a very, very serious message, a strong message. And I think this is what the South Africans are doing. Also, not just for South Africa, but in line with many African countries, because the African Union has also taken a similar strong position with the statement that they released recently condemning Israel's attacks on Gaza. Do you think that other African nations will follow suit now? Uh, do I think South African, uh, the African nations are what? Sorry, can you repeat? Do you think other African nations will follow suit now? Absolutely. I think other African nations will follow suit. Uh, currently, uh, it must be said, it would appear that the Africans are divided. African countries are divided. What with countries like uh, Zambia, countries like Kenya, like Ghana, uh, and Congo Republic, seemingly supporting Israel. But we must not forget that uh, a divisive war such as this one is quite likely also to invoke what I, I would call real politics. In other words, those countries looking at uh, their own economic and security interests because Israel has been supporting them in one way or the other in terms of, you know, dealing with drought relief and so on. So quite likely, we are quite likely to see those states apparently, you know, siding with Israel. But the majority, in my view, and the moral viewpoint, seems to rest with the Palestinians because, uh, as the Security uh, Secretary General uh, Gutierrez said, this issue is about occupation. And in my view, I also want to stress that we must not forget that we keep talking about the attack of Israel on Gaza or the attacks of Hamas on, on Israel. We forget that actually this is the issue around the rise of Palestinians to self-determination, which seems to be falling off the radar or of the international global agenda uh, repeatedly. Uh, Jawad, so Jordan has acted decisively, but few other Arab nations have been quite so bold, uh, and it seems that many people on the street are calling for them to do so. Do you think there may yet be more support and, and decisive action and, and severing of ties from, from well, the think, Arab world? Hmm. Well, thank you. I believe that they should. Uh, this is the time that they should, because there is no way uh, for the Arab masses, which are really protesting and expecting more from their leaders, to accept the current status, uh, status as, as is, uh, seeing uh, the bloodshed and the devastation and the mayhem which Israel is uh, inflicting on the people of Gaza uh, and also in the West Bank. And if uh, they let this uh, continue in Gaza, then it will probably be transferred to the West Bank as well, and we will see a uh, continuation of this ugliness. Uh, I think what we need to see from the Arab leaders who are going to meet on uh, for a summit meeting on, that, uh, on the 11th of this month, uh, very soon, five days from now, they should really make a decision that they should all take a unanimous uh, decision to withdraw their ambassadors, whoever have ambassadors. But that, that's pretty unlikely, isn't it? That's pretty unlikely given uh, past performance. Uh, well, this is what, what the people expect. Now, whether these people are going to respond to that or not, uh, let's wait and see. Uh, Maliha, what about in Pakistan? There's been a lot of protests there, too, as we've been showing on Al Jazeera, but again, not matched by government action. Yes, I think uh, the public in Pakistan expected a stronger response from the government. But I think the protest demonstrations show uh, that the people's sentiment in solidarity with the Palestinians remains strong. And I think now the focus is 
on the meeting or the summit meeting that has been called where Pakistan will also be present uh, in Riyadh of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Now, this is the largest Muslim bloc. So we have to wait and see whether any actions emanate uh, from this uh, conference or whether we are just going to hear uh, a lot of uh, condemnations and denunciations. So this is going to be a key key summit. Uh, I'm a little surprised that it took a month for, for this to be convened. But then, as they say, better late than ever. Now, these are obviously all ways in which diplomatic pressure is being mounted primarily on the United States so that it begins to see uh, that its policy, its dysfunctional policy in the Middle East is going to bring much more grief uh, to the region uh, as well as to its own policies uh, in the region. Because I think today the United States and many European countries uh, confront uh, a crisis uh, of uh, credibility. Uh, as the Secretary General said, this is uh, a crisis about humanity. And I think on that score, uh, we've seen that the United States and many European countries have come up short. They have not shown the kind of compassion uh, for the killings that are going on uh, in Gaza that they really should have and that their own publics also expect them to do. Kali uh, Broca, is this all this diplomatic pressure? And if it does build, if, if more nations sever ties, do you think it will yield anything? Are we going to see at least a chance for a humanitarian pause, at least? Nick, if I was speaking as a diplomat, I would say probably this would, uh, you know, um, affect the situation positively and bring about some changes here and there. But as I speak, as a student and scholar of politics or political science, I get very, very dejected or disappointed, knowing that uh, this is almost like a tired you know, musical record. We have been here before, whereby attacks of this nature, violence of this nature erupts, and the international community cries foul, and they try to do some ceasefire here and there, and you know, with people go to Oslo, and then after the, 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 the um, signing of the pact or the agreement, they, it is flouted and they, it is torn to shreds, and we are back again to here. So I'm a bit uh, um, uh, um, uh, pessimistic about what this will bring about. However, like I said in my, my earlier uh, comments, this, in my view, will uh, bring to bear sufficient or effective uh, pressure, diplomatic pressure, as it were, on the Israeli government, as well as obviously bring about to bear pressure on those uh, you know, governments or countries that might be feeling that they want to sit on the fence or at least to support Israel. Because once there's a lot of noise that is happening at the United Nations Security Council, UN Security General Assembly, and other international platforms. When you bring in the, the European Union and all the other countries, in my view, we will probably quite likely see, you know, a shift. But a shift to what's the solution? I am not so sure because there are other factors to consider once we talk, talk, start talking about this more than one century, you know, old conflict between Israel and Palestine. Uh, Jawad, in your experience as a, a top-level politician, uh, you've acted as foreign secretary roaming the world, and, and indeed you know the region, of course, very, very well. Uh, how does this crisis rank in terms of uh, global concern about how the war is being executed and where all this could lead? Well, there is, uh, as uh, your other, inter uh, other uh, two honorable uh, interlocutors have said, 
that there is a growing concern, and you have pointed this out, uh, over, over the world. Eventually, somebody must heed that. The United States, of course, I agree, is the key, uh, is the key uh, factor in this equation, and I believe that they should exercise uh, some power. However, we know that uh, President Biden is facing probably tough uphill elections uh, next November, uh, and at the same time, he is uh, looking uh, to the, probably the interests of the United States that are being tied to Israel. And uh, so, in a way, uh, he is hesitant and he's uh, not taking any, any action. Uh, the structure of his cabinet anyway and his uh, aides who come to this area probably is very much biased and pro-Israeli. Uh, so I really uh, think that uh, the internal uh, uh, pressure within the United States can uh, really impact that if he is feels that probably he could lose some of the states key key states uh, or what we call what we might call swing states if they if those turn against him especially where there are Arab and Muslim majorities uh, Muslim uh, solid minorities then uh, probably he would uh, and uh, and those could tip the balance against him in especially in some Midwestern states of the United States, uh, and uh, then he probably would not stand a chance of winning next mm. November elections. So in a way, he must be reminded and he must be pressed upon in order to recalculate uh, his mathematical, his political mathematics, uh, political numbers, and at the same time, uh, uh, take the right action that we expect a member of the United Nations who has been uh, uh, the primary intermediary in the peace process to take a more uh, just and equitable approach to this problem, especially that we see what we see every day on television. And we have to start also invoking the word genocide, and not only genocide, but the word, uh, you know, this is in an apartheid state. And uh, 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 my friends from uh, South Africa uh, have gone through that experience. There is a deep sense among many uh, Africaners that, uh, you know, what happened to them is happening to the Palestinians, and there is a deep empathy here. And so, therefore, nobody can question the right of the Palestinians to protest and to react to the inflicting pain that, is, that, is un, un, that doesn't seem to stop. Uh, right. whether we are in fighting or whether they are resisting or whether they are accepting the, the, modest, uh, the, 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 the de facto situation which Israel is dictating on their lives. Okay, so therefore, well, you, you've, uh, all, you've all expressed dismay at the, the failure of the UN Security Council. Yeah. Maliha, you have written about it indeed. Uh, China currently has a rotating chair of the UN Security Council. Uh, is that going to make any difference in these coming critical days? Well, I think China will push very hard uh, for the kind of resolution that the Russians had proposed, mm -hmm. which, as you know, uh, was vetoed uh, by the United States, which is uh, a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Now, as I understand it, the E10, or the 10 elected non-permanent members of the Security Council, have put a draft together, but that doesn't call for a ceasefire, not as yet. It calls only for a humanitarian pause. So we're likely to see a great deal of intense negotiation in the days ahead because there is still no agreement between the Chinese, the Arab countries, 
and the Russians who all want a ceasefire, and the United States and its allies, some of whom are non-permanent members also, who still are talking about uh, a short-duration uh, pause, which uh, is neither here nor there, because anything temporary is not going to stop the fighting. It's not going to stop the bloodshed. So I think the push uh, for a Security Council resolution from China, uh, we will see. But whether that's enough for the United States to relent uh, on its position, um, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to tell right now. Uh, Kali Boha, why is the United States so resolute in its support of Israel, do you think? I think partly because the sizable majority of the Jewish population, obviously after the Holocaust uh, in Germany and other places, fled to the United States and eventually ended up um, exercising significant influence in terms of uh, you know, foreign policy, maybe foreign and domestic policy in the U.S., and to that extent, I would you know, attribute this to that uh, kind of uh, influence. However, having said that, we must also know that uh, you know, states uh, are want, uh, known to sign diplomatic and bilateral you know, pacts that uh, will obviously ensure that one state or one country, one nation supports the other, even when they are facing uh, what the other state might not feel you know, as justifiable to, to fight, a war that uh, you know, they might think is not winnable. So uh, I agree with some of the panelists that uh, in this uh, regard, the U.S. also is a very, very key player uh, in a sense that um, it, it seems to have a better side of the ear of Israel, uh, if one wants, wants to use that, that phrase. But uh, it will also depend on whether the Israeli regime is willing to listen, because we know uh, in our case in the South African situation during the apartheid era, when many Western countries were supporting apartheid, uh, we had a similar situation whereby the powerful countries were uh, listening to the minority apartheid government and, of course, uh, you know, discounting the majority voices of the African countries and other people in, in the African diaspora and globally. So to that extent, I believe that uh, as the phrase has been mentioned, apartheid Israel, it would be very, very important for the, usual, the, 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 the U.S. And, and its allies and other forces, of, of course, to look at what Israel is doing in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, uh, um, uh, international human rights law and uh, what others call genocide, to find out whether it is actually justifiable to go to this extent. I know Israel is talking about retaliating and, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking its right to defend itself, but also we cannot have a humanitarian disaster. Uh, happening in this time and, and era of this century, forgetting that this happened during the times of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the, okay. the Second World War. Uh, Jawad, I just want to wind up the program with you. We've been talking a lot about the, the countless, more than 10,000 deaths uh, that we've seen in Gaza, but we haven't spoken of the, the fear of contagion of this, uh, this war spreading throughout the region. Uh, that is, of course, a very important consideration, isn't it? Yeah, I believe that, uh, yes, sir, I believe that uh, the longer this war stays, uh, the more it will spread uh, to other regions and other. You cannot escape that fact. Uh, international countries will be impacted by that. The world economy is going to be impacted by that. And then some superpower countries will start looking for opportunities to see how they can benefit from the situation. Uh, this is not a very 
nice world all the time. And uh, war, if it continues, of course it will spread. And it will involve many other uh, uh, countries. And the mayhem that would, uh, would result uh, would probably be uncontrollable. You can start a war, but you cannot probably finish it. Uh, so therefore, we have to uh, really try to contain the war, reach a ceasefire immediately. Uh, all this baloney about, uh, you know, human, uh, human corridor uh, is just uh, another way of saying that kill them softly. Uh, and uh, we need to have a ceasefire where Gazans can have uh, access to their basic needs uh, and uh, start uh, rebuilding their own town. Uh, otherwise, uh, the whole region is going to be uh, on fire. All right. With that, we'll leave it. Uh, thank you to all our guests, uh, Maliha Lotti, to Jawad Anani, and Kali Boha Mapunye. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you too for watching. You can find this program anytime just by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, just go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on X, formerly Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Nick Clark, and the whole team here, it's goodbye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was a panel discussion on uh, the situation uh, in Gaza, the severing of diplomatic relations uh, by a larger number of countries uh, with uh, the State of Israel based upon uh, the actions of the State of Israel against uh, the Palestinian people, particularly in Gaza. The next uh, segment uh, will deal with the question of the cost uh, of this war uh, being waged by the State of Israel, backed by the United States and other imperialist countries against uh, the Palestinians who will foot the bill uh, of this uh, war. Let's listen to this report as well. The human cost of Israel's war on Gaza is beyond calculation. Lives lost, families destroyed, tens of thousands injured. But what about the economic cost and who will pay? Will Israel contribute anything to rebuild communities devastated by its bombs? This is Inside Story. Hello there, I'm James Bays. The situation in Gaza has become so bad that health authorities can't count the dead because Israel has attacked communication networks. No financial figure can ever be put on the lives lost or the many, many Palestinians injured by Israeli bombs and bullets, weapons supplied by the US, UK and EU countries. The economic cost of Israel's relentless onslaught is not yet known, but there's no doubt it will be immense. Media from around the world are portraying Gaza as a place of utter devastation. But that masks its vibrant community and its resilience, forged from years of Israeli hostility, blockades and attacks. And it's reflected in Gaza's businesses, vital for its people, like the health service. Both sectors have been in the firing line and the destruction is affecting everyone. There's a shortage of bread. Gaza has been without electricity for a month. Who can live without electricity? We have no fresh water. Everything in Gaza is running out. Electricity, bread, everything. Gaza is suffering and the world is watching. For how long? For how long? 
We've been up since dawn queuing for bread. We go out in the morning to charge our phone batteries and find food for our children. We can't bear any more of this. How long do we have to live like this? None of the Arab leaders cares. No one cares about us. There's no water in the school. Sewage is everywhere. We're surrounded by dirt. None of these bathrooms work. None of these restrooms are clean. And there's no food and nothing to drink. What should we do? What should we do? Find us a solution, for God's sake. We need a ceasefire. Well, the UN has released a report on the impact of Israel's war on the Palestinian people in both Gaza and the West Bank. It says the physical destruction is causing an economic disaster. I think after one month of this war now unfolding, first of all, what is quite clear is that on top of the humanitarian crisis that the world has seen unfold in Gaza right now, we also are beginning to see um, the development crisis that follows the uh, increase in poverty rates, uh, the loss of GDP, the destruction in terms of infrastructure, housing units. Well, let's take a look at some of the findings of that UN Development Programme's report. It says Israeli strikes have destroyed or damaged nearly half of all the houses in Gaza, and 1.5 million Palestinians, many of whom are already refugees, have been forced from their homes more than 40% of schools, colleges and universities have been damaged or destroyed, meaning 625,000 students have no access to education. Two-thirds of Gaza's hospitals and healthcare centres have been forced to shut down. Many were directly targeted by Israeli airstrikes. In five weeks, about 390,000 Palestinians have lost their jobs and poverty is projected to soar by between 20 and 45 percent. And the UN says if the war continues into a third month, unemployment will nearly double, pushing an additional 660,000 people into poverty. Well, let's discuss all of this some more with our panel of guests. In Doha, we have Tamar Kamut. He's from Gaza and is an assistant professor of public policy at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. In Istanbul, we have Helene Sera Artam, Turkish foreign policy specialist and associate professor of international relations at the Istanbul Midaniyet University. And also in Doha, Sultan Barakat, a professor of public policy at the Hamad bin Khalifa University. He's also the author of the report after the conflict, reconstruction and development in the aftermath of war. We clearly have the right experts to discuss this subject. But before I talk about the devastating economic effects, I think we need to remember that the death toll is uh, continuing to mount. Uh, Tamar, to you first, a, a really grim moment, I think, um, in, uh, in this conflict, because for the first time, the Ministry of Health in Gaza, because of the situation in the hospitals in Gaza City, because of the communication um, uh, problems, uh, they've not been able to update their death toll uh, figures. So for now, it seems the dead in Gaza aren't even being counted. Uh, James, sadly, yes, that's, uh, that's the reality now in Gaza. There is no communication with the Ministry of Health or with hospitals. And uh, <clears throat> the humanitarian situation is obviously very dire, extremely dire. And, uh, I, and also, more or less, uh, the international community so far has failed Gaza many times uh, to bring ceasefire uh, on entrance of necessary aid, on even helping uh, creating safe 
uh, humanitarian corridors for Palestinians to be able to leave or evacuate and name it. It's, um, it's, a, it's you know, to be a Palestinian in these modern times, it's, um, it's something hard. Palestinians are paying a really heavy price. And how difficult is it for you, coming from Gaza, watching this from afar? Because these are family and friends. Yes, James, family, friends. Personally, I have worked uh, almost uh, seven years in Gaza with the United Nations Development Program, which has, which its own headquarters have been bombed today. It's located next to Al-Shifa Hospital. And I have been in charge of major reconstruction projects in the Gaza Strip. I have seen the peaceful times of Gaza, and I've seen also, and I've lived conflict and reconstructing also times in Gaza. So I know, I know every aspect of it. I know the, the suffering people went through, and I know also the humiliating situation and the, and the enduring effects of occupation, which never brought any sense of normality to Gazans. Sultan, um, when we look at the devastation, um, the um, humanitarian part of the United Nations says 45% of Gaza's homes have either been destroyed or damaged. And then we look, we see those pictures of people who are uh, moving uh, with small backpacks, moving from one part of Gaza to another, not knowing where anywhere is safe, trying to find some sort of shelter. The current figures from the UN are over 1.5 million people internally displaced. But I've also seen reports that the Israeli government, they were told it's 1.7 million. Yes, well, that could be, uh, I mean, the figure, whether it's 1.5 or 1.7, it's beyond uh, the ability of any nation to uh, immediately rebuild and to cater for the emergency needs of these populations, even when you have your borders open and you have the international community coming to your help. I mean, you just need to look at how long it took uh, countries like Turkey to recover from the immediate aftermath of the earthquake or Morocco recently and measure accordingly. In the context of Gaza, the biggest problem will always remain the total siege of the, of the area. Israel continues to hold control over the, the airspace, the waterways, and the uh, access from the sea and, and land, and will make it uh, difficult, as we have all witnessed, they made it impossible for humanitarian assistance to come. And as soon as they start thinking of rebuilding, they will come in also to make it very, very difficult for material and uh, goods to come in for the purpose of reconstruction. And this is one of the reasons why in your introduction you referred to the cumulative damage in, in, uh, in Gaza, that some of the damage that occurred as, uh, back in uh, 2009 is still being uh, dealt with. It hasn't totally recovered from uh, that war. Not to mention the bombings that followed in 2014 to 2021 and so on. So um, we have a, a unique situation in the world where you have a, a population of now 2.2 million people or 2.5 million people uh, in a very uh, dense, densely populated area where uh, their own uh, enemy who is uh, subjecting them to this violence is also being asked to help in its reconstruction. We can discuss this maybe in more detail later in, the, in our discussion. Helene, um, you, you heard there, Sultan talked about the example, we all remember earlier this year, of that earthquake that struck Syria and Turkey. 
um, that was an appalling natural disaster. Here we have a, a humanitarian emergency where things are continuing and those trying to flee uh, are being targeted um, and, and that targeting continues. Yeah, it took um, months and maybe years uh, previously in Turkey, and it's not already settled in the earthquake zone to reconstruct the cities, to turn the uh, way of living into normal situation. And emotionally, people are devastated as well in, in, in such places. So I can't imagine what the people in Gaza are feeling and you know going through in these very difficult days. Uh, unfortunately, that's the case, and that has been the case for Gazan people for so many years. It's, it's a conflict more than 75 years, and uh, for several times they went through such kind of crisis, such big attacks, attacks by Israel, and unfortunately we are witnessing uh, one of them again. Tamar, we're talking about the destruction that we're seeing, the pictures we're seeing, buildings gone, a wasteland. I'd, I'd be interested in your, when you look at those pictures, what as a Gazan do you think? Because they're not just buildings, are they? This is the history, this is the culture, the heritage of Gaza that's being destroyed. Uh, of course, James. I mean, I mean, obviously Israel here is... Uh, uh, demolishing any prospects for uh, for uh, you know uh, for Gazans to uh, to come back to resilience to themselves I mean when you look at the scale of this destruction and knowing that Gaza is an open-air prison an enclave and every piece of uh, every meter of cement every house every a civil facility, every road that is being uh, has been demolished so far. Uh, realistically speaking, uh, reconstructing Gaza after this war in in a normal setup where access of aid is not restricted, restricted Israel has no vetting uh, vetting uh, uh, over aid. It might take years, you know. I mean, as, as my colleague from Turkey said, I mean, even in Turkey, which is a normal country, which has also received vast assistance and, and help from many other nations still uh, coping with the aftermath of the earthquake, what we see in Gaza is an earthquake, but it's a man-made disaster by the Israelis. And uh, for me, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, to, to, to discuss the future of Gaza and the possibilities of reconstructing it, it's hard to talk about it without starting discussing the scenarios and how this war will end in Gaza. Because in where I come from, and knowing the Israelis, and know also the complicit positions of the international community, including many donors who, who provide assistance to the Palestinians and selectively choose where money should go and where it should not go, uh, this, this, I mean, uh, it all depends really on, on how will this war end. I mean, if it ends with... Hamas is still in power. Uh, I think the misery will continue, and I have to say it bluntly here, uh, because uh, Israel will be will have utter control of the process. So far, what they have publicly declared, the Israelis, uh, that they envisage a future without Hamas, and I don't think they will be able to achieve it. But the thing is, if this war ends with the same previous status quo, plus the vast destruction and loss in lives, and, and Israel, again, retains full control of any future reconstruction processes. We're talking about even a more dangerous scenario of Gaza being emptied slowly from its own people. Because the living conditions and the limitations 
the Israel will put on this such reconstruction process will make it so hard for people to stay for long and wait for aid to come and t to regain a normal life again. Sultan, we clearly don't know how this is going to end, but I do think we've probably reached a pretty important stage in this, have we not now? Because Israel seems to have succeeded in shutting down the hospitals in Gaza City, the last places of care and refuge uh, in the north. And we're now seeing these thousands of people who've been intimidated to leave their homes. One assumes because of Israel's stated aim to, to, um, to destroy Hamas, this means even more bombardment and destruction is likely on the way for Gaza City very soon. Yeah, I mean, it looks like uh, Netanyahu has now made up his mind to slice off the 20% of the land uh, to the north of Gaza, which includes much of the Gaza city. And he'll probably aim to turn that into a no man's land, uh, a security zone similar to the one Israel created in Lebanon following the invasion of Lebanon in 1982. And uh, this would... Uh, uh, maybe this is where he was referring to total security control within that particular sector so that he pushes the resistance as far as possible from the main cities of Tel Aviv and Ascalon. And then from there, he would want to exercise uh, further incursions into the rest of Gaza uh, to provide uh, for, uh, for security, as he, again, as he put it, to have the ability to make sure that uh, security is held within, within Gaza and, and there will be no threat from Gaza to Israel. Now, of course, this is his own scenario, and uh, it is very early to say whether he'll be able to achieve it or not. But uh, to get to, to that point, uh, he is having to destroy much of, of the area. I mean, now we're talking about almost 50% of the, of the housing stock. Uh, I suspect probably more. Uh, the infrastructure totally is, is, is now a ruin. Uh, hospitals, schools, all those people that he's pushed out from northern Gaza have no temporary refugee camps to, to seek refuge in. Most of them are in schools, which means that we have a whole generation out of school now. Uh, and uh, given the speed in which things happen in Gaza, when they take refugee in schools, it takes another year, year and a half to get them out of schools into their repaired housing and so on. So education is out of the equation for a long, long time to come. And of course, the unemployment continues to be very high uh, and will get worse because of the siege. Uh, in normal context of reconstruction, connectivity to the rest of the world is very, very important in, in terms of allowing not just the capacities and the skills to come in to help and consult, but also the material. It's, it's uh, very few places around the world are self-sufficient in the sense that they can generate their own reconstruction uh, hardware. Uh, so, uh, by cutting this uh, uh, connectivity to the rest of the world, whatever plans are put forward to Gaza are going to be twice as uh, difficult and problematic and will take a long, long time to implement, which has been the case, as I was saying earlier, uh, and the experience of Gaza since 2009. Well, let's look at the previous four wars in Gaza. The senseless cycle of damage has cost billions of dollars. The three-week war that began in December 2008 and ended in January 2009 caused destruction amounting to $2 billion. That's according to the World Bank. Hamas says the eight days of Israeli attacks in 2012 cost Gaza $1.2 billion. 
Four to six billion dollars was the estimated cost of rebuilding Gaza after 2014. And the damage and economic losses from the Israeli attacks in 2021 amounted to more than half a billion dollars. Helene, just remind us, in the past, who has been, what have been the main countries involved in the efforts to rebuild Gaza? I know your own country where you sit, Turkey, is one of them. And our other guests are, are, are speaking from Qatar, which is another one of the major funders in the past. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, actually, Turkey has increased its uh, capacity a lot, a very uh, high amount of, of foreign aid, let's say. And uh, Palestine has been always uh, in the first three of these countries, uh, as far as I remember, Syria, Somalia, and the third one is Palestine, especially uh, those countries who are receiving foreign aid from Turkey. Uh, for that reason, I would like to once again underline that Turkey aims to do its best uh, to reconstruct uh, Gaza, of course. But there is an irony here, unfortunately, that uh, although President Erdogan is uh, showing clearly his reaction against uh, what Israel is doing uh, against the Gazan people. At the same time, he is also choosing a careful language, although the, the amount, the tone that he's using against Israel has slightly increased. Still, I can say that he is quite careful about his words. That is because uh, we and many other countries who are um, giving their soul, their heart to the people of Gaza to make their lives better, uh, unfortunately have to deal with Israel uh, first. So we have to keep the contact, preserve our contact, diplomatic ties with Israel in order to do something for the people who are stuck uh, in Gaza. Well, Helene, Helene, that that, that brings me to what we saw at that um, Islamic... Uh, Arab League summit that took place uh, in Riyadh. And you mentioned the comments of President Erdogan. Uh, He's calling on Israel to foot the bill for the reconstruction in Gaza. Let's listen to what he had to say. A third point is compensation. It is one of the factors that Israel is acting recklessly is that on every occasion they escape payment of compensation for each and every crime they commit from destruction to the killing. Israel must pay compensations. It is like a favored, cuddled boy. Yeah, accusing Israel of being a spoiled child, Tamar, and saying that Israel should pay reparations. That's not going to happen, is it? Uh, as long as there is no international will to make Israel accountable uh, for these uh, for these crimes, you know, uh, of course it will not happen. I mean, so far, I mean, uh, since the creation of Oslo in 1949, the international community has been committed to funding and supporting, you know, the creation of of uh, of Palestinian institutions to, uh, in a hope to achieve the the, the permanent. Uh, uh, peace, you know, getting to a permanent peace and establishing a Palestinian state. And billions of dollars have been invested in this project, uh, not only from Turkey. I mean, the European Union is a, very, is a major donor. The U.S. is a donor, Japan, Arab countries, Islamic countries. But the problem is that since the creation of Oslo, Israel has been more or less behaving as if it's in an occupation five-star mood. Like, keeping occupation does not... Uh, cost Israel anything because there is 
uh, a third party, which is the donor and the international community, paying for the bill. And the whole idea of Oslo was built around a five-year time frame where it should lead to an independent Palestinian state, and then aid will be concentrated on supporting a viable Palestinian state. But because of the failed peace process, this has never uh, been the case. So what, we happen, what happened is a failed peace process that have started from 1949 till now, you still have the donors committed to helping the Palestinians at the same time maintaining the occupation. So it's a very dysfunctional status quo where Israel feels it's at ease of doing anything, targeting people, targeting infrastructure, and this tax money that comes from all over the world, the Turks pay it, the Europeans pay it, the Arabs pay it, it's wasted. And no one is able to put Israel, make Israel accountable for this. So yes, if there is any hope that the peace process will be revived, hopefully after the end of this war, there should be a very serious discussion by international community on ensuring that there is no such thing as free aid and that Israel should be also accountable for any targeting of this aid. Otherwise, and I'm also all in for what President Erdogan said, for Israelis to feel the price, they should be accountable and pay as well. Pay for whatever they uh, inflict on Palestinians, be in compensation for victims, be in compensation for infrastructure, and name it. And also, uh, James, there is something also we have to talk about as well. Let's not forget that Hamas emerged in the Palestinian political life also as a democratically elected movement because there was an election in 2006, and the international community approved and blessed these elections, and it was described as, an, and as, as, a, as, a, as, as a democratic one. Uh, so uh, donors also, they cannot go and pick and choose when it comes to helping Palestinians. There should be no uh, discrimination when it comes to aid. Let me bring in yeah. Sultan now, just on reconstruction in the past, because I know you've done a lot of work in this. Um, and I'm getting a bit technical here, but there was something called the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism. Can you tell me how that hampered reconstruction in the past? Right, well, that mechanism was introduced in the aftermath of 2014, and it was intended to ensure that uh, the building material coming into Gaza does not have dual use. In other words, cannot be used to manufacture weapons. So steel pipes, uh, a lot of uh, steel items in general, uh, cement, etc., could not come into the Gaza Strip unless Israel verifies where every piece goes. And there's a very sophisticated mechanism. It was run by the United Nations, supervised also by uh, the EU and Israel, and in agreement with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and it, it allows Israel to follow every piece of equipment where it ended up, in which building exactly. This is how, why. How, how Sultan, how did that hinder the reconstruction efforts? Well, it, it, has, it made it extremely slow to bring material in. And, uh, and as such, uh, you know, you couldn't really line up people to be able to do the work in a timely fashion. It also made it extremely expensive. When you have a siege like that, uh, we have an economic concept of scarcity sort of set in. Everything that you, uh, that you, uh, you can get your hands on in, in Gaza becomes ten, ten, 10 times as expensive as anywhere else outside Gaza. Now, before 2014, there was a, a booming reconstruction phase between 2009, uh, well, exactly started maybe 11 and 12, 
under Morsi, when Morsi was the president in Egypt, he turned a blind eye to the tunnels that the Palestinians had established between Gaza and uh, the Egyptian territory. And there was, at the peak, there were about 300 of them. And they were able to smuggle in a lot of material, which reflected extremely positively on the economy inside Gaza, particularly on employment. Construction and reconstruction is the main form of employment for young men in Gaza, uh, and it's been going into, into, into peaks uh, every now and then, but in general, this is what people can do in that confinement. Okay, uh, so let, that, let, me bring in, let me bring in Tamar again now, if I can. Uh, Tamar, I want to go back to that summit in Riyadh, because um, there was economic measures that that summit of Islamic and Arab um, leaders could have made. Apparently in the preparatory measures they were talking about all sorts of punitive uh, measures against Israel, cutting diplomatic and economic ties, leveraging Arab energy and financial power against Israel, banning Israeli aircraft from Arab airspace, and they didn't agree any of it. Your reaction? Uh, not surprised at all, James. I mean, let's go back in history. Remember uh, the 1982 siege of Lebanon, the siege of the PLO in Beirut when Israel invaded Lebanon uh, 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 to get rid of the PLO. Uh, at that time, we only had one Arab country that had diplomatic relations with Israel, which was Egypt, which, which had a peace agreement with Israel after 1973. And most Arab countries did, did not have any diplomatic relations with Israel, and still they failed to do anything to help the PLO. Okay, uh, we've not got much time, though. Tamar, we, Tamar, we've got not much time. Your, what, yeah. what, what didn't happen at Riyadh, if you could address that very quickly? Uh, uh, most Arab countries, especially the ones who have normalized relations with Israel, they put their strategic interests with Israel and the West over the Palestinian interests. Your reaction, please, Sultan, to what happened at that summit? I agree. I think it was a missed opportunity to uh, come out with a single voice that represents the Arab and Muslim nations, similar to the one they've exercised uh, in the UN General Assembly. You know, they came together and they managed to get that resolution through. The minimum should have been to cut uh, political, uh, uh, diplomatic relations with Israel. I think they should have also uh, uh, introduced the possibility of uh, economic sanctions and uh, also uh, maybe uh, some kind of playing with the, with the oil prices, which will then uh, make the United States think twice about the uh, unwavering support that's now giving to, to Israel. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Our guests were Tama Kamut, Helene Sarah Artam and Sultan Barakat. Al Jazeera will keep following the war on Gaza around the clock. You can also find more context and analysis on our website, aljazeera.com. If you've got your own comments we'd like to hear from you, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story or on X, that's the former Twitter. Find us at AJ Inside Story from me, James Bays, and the team here in Doha. Stay safe and I'll see you very soon. Bye for now. Welcome back, and of course, welcome back, and uh, of course, uh, that was a discussion on uh, the situation in Gaza, and of course, what, uh, who will fit the bill uh, for the reconstruction of Gaza this time around is a major uh, question uh, that is being asked uh, through people around the world. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal.
special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for the early morning hour of November, Monday, November 13th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for this program.
the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled Walk Away. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Monday, uh, November 13, 23. And uh, our final segment, uh, we'll hear excerpts uh, from the historical uh, assassination of uh, Count Baronet uh, in 1949 uh, in an effort to bring some resolution to the Palestinian question during the early phase of uh, the State of Israel. Let's listen uh, to this report. The Northern Cemetery, principal burial ground of the city of Stockholm. Last resting place for Sweden's most celebrated citizens. Not far from Alfred Nobel, whose famous prizes bear his name, lies another illustrious Swede, Count Volker Bernadotte of Visborg. Like Nobel, his name is linked with peace as the first UN mediator in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Unlike Nobel, his life ended violently. I think uh, foreigners like Bernadotte, who want to make peace, have a little chance of doing so because they don't really understand the deep roots of the conflict. On the 17th of September, 1948, shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, Bernadotte was assassinated. The killers, right-wing Israelis. The Stone Gang people were seen as true patriots. They got off scot-free, and one of them, Yitzhak Shamir, became the Prime Minister of Israel. This is the story of how peace can be frustrated by extremism. How assassination can turn the tide of history. With consequences that still scar the Middle East. This is the story of killing the Count. February 1945, Count Volker Bernadotte is about to board a Nazi plane bound for Berlin. As Vice President of the Swedish Red Cross, he was leading the biggest humanitarian effort of World War II. He had come to Germany to negotiate with Heinrich Himmler, Nazi Minister of the Interior. This meeting would secure the release of thousands of concentration camp prisoners. By the end of the war, Bernadotte's mission, known as the White Buses, would successfully evacuate 30,000 prisoners of over 20 nationalities to safety in Sweden. One third of them 
were Jews. In the aftermath of war, those Jews who had survived the Holocaust began to leave a continent that had become for them a personal hell. After the war, we began like the birds to flee to Palestine. English uh, ships, they discovered us. They didn't allow us to come to our country. The British, the ruling authority in Palestine, had decided to put a stop to the tide of Jewish immigration. tide that had been swelling since fascism had begun its march across Europe. In 1936, local Arab objections to both British colonial rule and mass Jewish immigration to their homeland erupted into a full-scale revolt. Jewish settlements in Palestine had been protecting themselves against sporadic Arab attacks with a defense militia, the Haganah. In 36, in the face of Arab rebellion, suddenly it dawned on the younger generation that unless they are ready to undertake the military effort in the country, the Jews won't be able to stay. So the defensive ethos changed into an offensive ethos. A more extreme group now emerged from the Haganah, called Irgun, the national military organization in the land of Israel. In March 1937, Irgun launched a series of bomb attacks against Arab cafes, markets, buses and trains. With the cycle of violence in Palestine growing, the British decided to act. At St. James's Palace, a conference is hoping to arrive at a solution of the Arab-Jewish problem of Palestine. After a conference in London, attended by both Arabs and Jews, the British government produced a white paper setting a limit on Jewish immigration to Palestine for the next five years. Beyond that, it would be left 
to the Arab majority to decide. To the Jews, this was complete betrayal. Soon the British would feel their anger. On the 26th of August 1939, Irgun started its own war against the British, killing two officers in a bomb attack. Six days later, the whole world descended into war. The Irgun immediately called off its campaign, so as not to hinder Britain's fight against what they called the Jews' greatest enemy in the world, German Nazism. But within Irgun, a splinter group now emerged, led by a man determined to fight on. Abraham Stern thought that Britain was a greater enemy of the Jews than Nazi Germany. And he wanted to continue to fight the British during the Second World War in order to expel them. In July 1940, Stern created a new militant breakaway from Irgun called Lehi, or Fighters for the Freedom of Israel. To the British, it was simply the Stern Gang. The fate of Volker Bernadotte would be determined by these men. They wanted the British out of the Middle East. The Germans wanted the British out of the Middle East. So Lehi decided to make common cause with the Nazis, tried to make contact with them in Istanbul. The Nazis weren't interested. Nothing came of it. It was a mixture of stupidity and fanaticism. They thought that they should join the enemy of England in order to obtain help for their goals in Palestine which was just stupid. They were very brave and very stupid people. In February 1942, during his arrest in Tel Aviv by the British, Avraham Stern was shot dead. On the 6th of November 1944, Lehi, commanded now by Yitzhak Shamir, struck back in an unexpected place, Cairo. Two assassins killed Lord Moyne, the British minister resident in the Middle East, outside his home. Yitzhak Shamir was a terrorist, and not just he, but the other members of the Stern Gang defined themselves as terrorists and wrote that terrorism is a perfectly legitimate means for expelling the foreign occupier from the land of Israel. After the end of World War II in 1945, as Jewish organizations were honoring Bernadotte for his work with the white buses, 
Many of the Holocaust survivors trying to enter Palestine found their way barred. Britain had refused to raise immigration limits set before the war. To the Jews, the betrayal now seemed even greater. Having won one war, Britain found itself fighting another. This time against Jewish militant groups. What developed was a kind of competition. The Lehi was the most extreme. The Irgun had to become more extreme in order to compete with the Lehi. And the Haganah became more extreme in order to compete with the Irgun. So the whole process became more extreme. Violence and death ride the ancient streets of Jerusalem. Terrorism here, as in Jaffa and Tel Aviv, has been the chief outward sign of a critical situation. Palestine continues to present one of the most obstinate problems of today. Responding with a draconian counterinsurgency campaign, the British arrested thousands. imposing the death penalty on convicted insurgents. In response, Irgun, under the command of another future Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, bombed the King David Hotel, the main base for the British administration in Palestine. Killing British Arabs and Jews alike. By October 1947, Jewish underground groups had killed 127 British servicemen. I have been instructed by His Majesty's government to announce that in the absence of a settlement, they must plan for an early withdrawal of British forces and of the British administration from Palestine. Britain had washed its hands of a problem of its own making. The fate of Palestine now lay with the United Nations. In November 1947, the UN General Assembly adopted Resolution 181, recommending that Palestine be partitioned into separate Arab and Jewish states. News of the United Nations' decision to recommend partition brings mild jubilation among the Jewish communities in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. This was the first ever international recognition 
of the long-hoped-for Jewish state. But the extremists saw no cause for celebration. They thought that the Jews had an absolute right to the whole of Palestine and that the borders of the Jewish state shouldn't be defined by any foreign bodies like the United Nations. So they wanted greater Israel as it had existed in biblical times. In April 1948, Haganah forces began a military operation to take control of Arab areas assigned to the Jewish state under the partition plan. Extremist militias joined the effort, but soon they had overstepped the mark. The Lehi and Etzel, that is the Stern Gang and the Irgun, as the British called them, participated in one famous atrocity, which was, of course, the conquest and massacre which occurred in the village of Deir Yassin on the 9th of April, 1948, when about 100 villagers were killed, most of them civilians. With the departure of the last High Commissioner of Palestine, the British mandate was over. That same day in Tel Aviv, David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the State of Israel. the celebrations would be short-lived. Within hours, the Egyptian Air Force would bomb the capital of the newly formed state. At the same time, the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria and Iraq crossed the borders into Palestine. Whereas the maintenance of order and security in Jerusalem is an urgent question which concerns... In New York, the United Nations faced a major challenge to its power and prestige, the first Arab-Israeli war. On the 20th of May, 1948, the United Nations named its first mediator in Palestine. The man who would take on the task was Count Volker Bernadotte, hero of the White Buses. He was uh, from a noble family, he was a relative of the king, and he thought he could deal very good with people meeting eye to eye and making compromises and uh, things like that. At the end of May 1948, Bernadotte left Paris for the Middle East. Seen off by his American-born wife, Estelle. In a pointed echo of the White Buses campaign, 
Bernadotte had his specially chartered plane painted white with UN and Red Cross markings. Into the fire, Count Bernadotte is cast by United Nations as Last Hope Mediator. His wartime record as an intermediary raises him above suspicion of partisan sympathies. In Tel Aviv, his first task is to... His first task was to bring about a ceasefire, which uh, needed that he went to the different capitals in kind of shuttle diplomacy, uh, which he really invented because everybody was very impressed about his uh, energy, <laughs> the, the tempo he used when he was traveling around. And uh, you can see he made all possible efforts to bring this ceasefire about. After only 10 days in the Middle East, Bernadotte scored his first success. On the 9th of June, he announced a four-week truce. If it had been a full-feather politician knowing all the tricks, I'm not sure he would have succeeded better because uh, they were uh, surprised of his uh, total openness. He never uh, had these diplomatic roundabouts all the time. And many people say that that was clear advantage. By the end of June, after weeks of diplomacy, Bernadotte was finally able to unveil a new plan for peace in Palestine. Bernadotte was a realist, and he did not want to abandon the UN partition plan, but he wanted to modify it to fit in with a new reality on the ground. And if you look at the map of the UN partition plan, it doesn't make much sense. It's three Jewish enclaves with kissing points, and then there is the Arab state, which is also fragmented. So basically what you wanted to do is to give the Jews the whole of the Galilee in the north and the coastal plain, but to deprive them of the Negev and to give the Negev to the Arab state. But there was not to be an independent Palestinian state by this time. The Arab part of Palestine was to be incorporated with Transjordan. Despite there being no independent state allocated to the Palestinians, Bernadotte's proposals did include one key provision for them. The right of return for refugees expelled by force from their homes in Israeli-controlled areas. Bernadotte Bernadotte proposed the right of return, and he managed to obtain a UN resolution that this is a humanitarian right that can't be ignored, with no limits or numbers, the complete and immediate right to return. And Bernadotte's plan included one more provision which would outrage the Israelis. In his first peace plan, uh, which I think was uh, his biggest mistake, he said that Jerusalem would uh, be inside the Arab state because uh, there was no possibility whatsoever to have the Jews agree to something like that. Under Bernadotte's plan, Judaism's most holy place 
would come under the control of the Arabs. Jewish militants decided they must fight on in defense of Jerusalem. The campaign against Bernadotte was building and plans were soon being laid for killing the Count. The Greek island of Rhodes. A World Heritage Site, today it's one of the most popular tourist destinations in Europe. Rose's Hotel is one of the oldest on the island. In the summer of 1948, Count Volker Bernadotte, the UN's first mediator for Palestine, had chosen the island as his headquarters. The arrival of his American-born wife, Estelle, and their two sons, Volker and Bertil, eased the tension as Bernadotte waited for the official response to his proposals to end the war that had broken out in Palestine. After two weeks relaxing with his family, Bernadotte set out on another round of shuttle diplomacy. In the morning one day he came with a Red Cross uniform in his head and said, put this on. And I put it on. And then I was allowed to travel with him in the United Nations airplane to Jerusalem. But I was told to stay in the car. Bernadotte had come to Jerusalem to meet the Israeli Foreign Minister, Moshe Sharet. Israel's response to Bernadotte's plan was total rejection. I think they saw him as an enemy of the Jewish state. He was going to um, reduce by large measure the size of the state the Jews were to have. So they regarded him as pro-Arab, basically, and he was in some ways a, an agent of the British government who were regarded, rightly or wrongly, by the Israelis as anti-Zionist. After the failure of Bernadotte's first plan, and with a four-week truce coming to its end, fighting broke out again in Palestine. Three days later, Bernadotte, accompanied by his wife Estelle, flew into LaGuardia Airport in New York. I think that every possibility has been exhausted. Between he wanted to impress on the Security Council the urgent need for firm and decisive action. In the first place, to my mind, the action should leave no room for doubt that the United Nations will not permit the Palestine issue 
to be settled by use of force. In the second case, the action should be so strong and firm that neither party could afford to run the risk of ignoring or defying it. Back in the Middle East, and with a second fragile truce in place, Bernadotte began a new round of negotiations. But securing that peace seemed impossible. He didn't have anything that would convince either the Arabs or the Israelis that he had real authority or power. So there was a lot of resistance from both sides to his proposal. In mid-August, an exhausted Bernadotte flew to Sweden. He was to chair the International Red Cross Conference. And it was a chance to see his family. He took me out for a whole day. We went to a museum, we went to saw football and things like that. And I remember afterwards that having my father for myself a whole day was a very, very fantastic thing to happen. Once. Before returning to the Middle East, he arranged to meet Estelle in Paris three weeks later for her birthday. It was a meeting he would never make. During the first two weeks of September 1948, Bernadotte spent what would prove to be the last days of his life in Rhodes putting the final touches to a revised peace plan. Completed on the 16th of September, it contained a major concession to Israel, Jerusalem. The city would no longer be under Arab control. It would be administered by the United Nations. But this change had come too late. Six days earlier, in an apartment in Tel Aviv's Ben Yehuda Street, the commanders of Lehi, the Stern Gang, had come together to seal the fate of Folke Bernadotte. Nathan Yelin Moore voted against the assassination of Bernadotte. Dr. Israel Eldad voted for the assassination. And Yitzhak Shamir cast his vote in favor of the assassination of the UN envoy. So it was two against one. That's how the decision was made. On the 17th of September, 1948, at 10 o'clock in the morning, Count Volker Bernadotte landed at Kalandia Airport, north of Jerusalem.
shortly after, his three-car convoy arrived at the Mandelbaum Gate, the crossing point into the western Jewish part of Jerusalem. Waiting at the gate was a liaison officer assigned to him by the Israeli government, Captain Moshe Hillman. The Count noticed that Mr. Hillman was armed with a pistol. So he turned to him and said, No, 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 no. You have to get rid of that pistol. Give it to the other officers here. You're under the protection of the UN. And when you're protected by the UN, there are no weapons. With no military escort, no protection other than the UN flag, Bernadotte's convoy entered Jewish Jerusalem. After a few hours spent visiting the former British governor's house, they headed to the YMCA for the night. As they left, André Serrault, a French colonel traveling with the UN convoy, asked Hillman to do him a favor. Right away, the liaison officer swaps seats in Bernadotte's car and goes to sit in another car in the convoy and switches with Colonel Serrault, who asked for the chance to thank Bernadotte for the Red Cross campaign that had saved his wife from a German concentration camp. Serrault's wife had been liberated by one of the white buses. His gratitude would cost him his life. Heading towards the YMCA, the three-car convoy was suddenly halted. An army jeep pulled out from a side street to block the road. Three men in Israeli army fatigues sprang out of the jeep. They block the road, and then two of the assassins come out, Steinberg and Ben Moshe, and puncture the tires of the vehicles in front. They don't know which car the Count is in. Then suddenly the Count opens the window of his car, so he can see what's happening. He hears the shot. Then they identify him, and Yehoshua Cohen goes to the car, puts his Schmeisser submachine gun in through the window, and unloads on everyone sitting in the rear seat. Six bullets tore into Bernadotte's left arm, throat, and chest. Cohen kept firing, pumping 18 bullets into Colonel Serrault. In a matter of seconds, the assassins had made their escape. By five o'clock in the afternoon, Bernadotte lay dead in hospital. Alongside him, Colonel Serrault. I heard it on the radio, which was um, a bit deplorable in many ways. 
um, the news had come first of all to the Swedish king and um, he debated with members of the family who would inform uh, my mother and that debate carried on so much that the Swedish radio assumed that the family had been told but we hadn't so therefore it came as a bit of a shock I uh, got up and went to my mother and said something's happened to my father and she said I, I, I felt it I had a feeling she knew that he was dead The next day, Bernadotte's body left Israel on the same white plane that had carried him in search of peace. It was on its way to Paris, where Bernadotte had been due to present his second peace plan to a UN meeting. And to meet his wife, to celebrate her birthday. Politicians and diplomats representing their countries at the UN meeting in Paris came to Orly Airport to pay their last respects. With the assassination of its mediator, the UN had failed its first great test. That evening, Bernadotte's body arrived in Stockholm and was carried to the family home. My father lay in a room in our house, but um, my mother didn't think it a good idea, and neither did I, that I should go in and see him like that, so I didn't, never saw him. Five days later, Swedes came onto the streets of Stockholm to bid farewell to Bernadotte. Ninety-year-old King Gustav arrived to mourn the death of his beloved nephew. Scouts and Red Cross workers from the two organizations Bernadotte chaired lit the coffin along its way to the Northern Cemetery. In Israel, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion ordered an immediate hunt for the killers. But it soon became apparent that the hunt was not what it seemed. Moshe Hillman, the liaison officer traveling with Bernadotte, had recognized the driver of the jeep used by the assassins. My dad went to Moshe Dayan, who was then the military commander of Jerusalem, and said to him, Listen, I received a threatening letter that said, Hillman, be careful. Why? Because he knew one of them. But he said he didn't want to mess anything up, and Dayan said to him, You know what? Let's leave things in secret for the time being. We didn't hear, we didn't see.
With Bernadotte's death, his plan also died. But the legacy of his assassination had only just begun. Welcome back, and uh, that was a audio documentary on uh, the assassination of folks Bernadotte in uh, 1948 uh, in Palestine. That's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go uh, to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out with the music of John Coltrane uh, from the album entitled Meditations. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.